0: Hello, Internet! I'm Mike Gillis, and just a couple quick words before we get started. This month, our panel talks about Dungeons & Dragons, which, we neglect to mention, is turning 40 years old this year. This game was a huge part of my childhood, and if after the show you find yourself wanting to learn more about it, then I highly recommend checking out The Elfish Gene, Dungeons, Dragons, and Growing Up Strange by Mark Barrowcliffe. It's a memoir of growing up nerdy in the 70s through the prism of playing D&D, and really hits close to home with my experiences as a gamer in my teens and the weird idiosyncratic people that play it. Or, I'd also like to recommend checking out the videos by an internet reviewer named Noah Antweiler, who goes under the name Spoonie. He has a series of videos called Counter Monkey, where he tells stories of his time running role-playing games like D&D and working in a gaming store. Just awesome stuff. And finally, if you want to get a taste of some hilarious grade-A bullshit anti-Dungeons and Dragons propaganda, Google Dark Dungeons which is a religious comic tract full of ritual suicide and cults by a man named Jack Chick, who is either a complete fucking lunatic or an Andy kaufman style genius. You decide. And with that out of the way, on to the panel. I'll see you on the other side. Out of the briny
1: depths of the internet, comes a comic book podcast so powerful, it cannot be contained by a single continent. Mike and Paul, save the universe!
0: I'm Mike Gillis And I'm Paul Root If you're an unsatisfied comics fan, we want to help you find better comics And if you've never picked up a comic before in your life We want to help you find what could be your new favorite thing On Mike and Paul Save the Universe, we love the bejesus out of comics And so should you Find us online at MikeAndPaul.com Dungeons & Dragons is probably the nerdiest thing I've ever loved I came to D&D late in my adolescence first picking up a 20-sided die in high school, and realizing that I could sit in my friend's dining room and pretend to be a wizard without feeling silly. Well, maybe a little silly. It was like a game of pretend set in a mashup of the worlds of J.R.R. Tolkien, Robert E. Howard, and Michael Moorcock, refereed by one of your friends, decided by die rolls, and tackled with the seriousness of a meeting of the UN Security Council. I've probably spent several days worth of my life in a darkened room, sitting around a table cluttered with pieces of paper, dice, and half full cups of Mountain Dew, and arguing about the range and effect of imaginary magic spells. A few years ago, I read an article by Patton Oswalt where he lamented the death of the old nerd culture. That misty, primeval age before loving things like science fiction, comic books, and the Lord of the Rings were mainstream. While I disagree with the overall thesis, I get it, and I sympathize. Nerddom was like a secret language back then, like the Hobo's Code. It was a way to drop a vague reference into a conversation and sniff out fellow nerds. Back then, when you made a joke about Gollum, a laugh meant you'd found one of your own people. Somehow in an age where Captain America t-shirts are worn unironically by jocks and Doctor Who merchandise has exploded across every shop in America, Dungeons & Dragons is still Geekdom's little secret. It's still that one thing that, despite its household name, is just nerdy enough that it scares people away and requires a sort of dedication and time consumption that repels the merely casually nerdy. Somehow, in an age dominated by video games that instantly create entire fantasy realms on an Xbox, D&D and the countless pencil and paper role-playing games continue to thrive in the imaginations of millions of gamers around countless dining room tables. So let's roll for initiative, save versus poison, and delve into the realm of the Dread Lich King. This episode, we are looting the treasure room of Gary Gygax's iconic imagination game, Dungeons and & Dragons. And joining us first, a returning panelist to Radio Versus the Martians. He's a programmer and a role-playing game designer. His company, Ryan Shaddock Games, publishes licensed material for the science fiction role-playing game Numenera. Welcome back to the program, Ryan Chaddock hey mike and back with us he's the resident board game guru and regular contributor to the bj Shays geek nation podcast longtime role player and podcaster how's it going chris walker
2: it's going very well thanks for having me
0: and finally the hawk to my animal the jughead to my archie and the cassidy to my jesse custer casey doran bam natural 20 <laughs> so i want to start with you ryan you're the game designer <laughs> If you had to describe what a role-playing game like Dungeons & Dragons was to somebody who had no idea what Dungeons & Dragons, what role-playing, what saving versus poison was, how would you describe it?
1: Well, I think it's easy, and a lot of role-playing games talk about this in the first couple of pages. It's let's pretend where someone has already written the rules for you, and in order to figure out what happens, once in a while you use a randomizer like a die in order to figure it out, in order to play fair, basically.
0: Chris, you're the board game guru. You're a guy who plays a lot of games. A
2: lot of games.
0: How would you describe (laughs) the role-playing experience, and how did you first encounter it?
2: When I first was introduced to role-playing, it was Dungeons & Dragons, of course, as as many men my age would probably tell you, their first role-playing experience was Dungeons & Dragons. I had been a fantasy fan, you know, I had read Tolkien and I had read a lot of other kinds of things like that. The whole world was very interesting to me and the idea that we could be those roles and to fight that dragon and to, you know, loot that treasure room and things like that, that was an amazing idea for me conceptually. I was introduced to it by a friend of mine who was not the most imaginative cat I ever met in my life, but he had a love for games and playing them. So he sold it to me as, hey, you're going to be a thief and you're going to you know, do this and that and the other thing. And that was my introduction to it. And that's what got me excited about it was the idea. Just like you said, it was make-believe with rules already laid out. Yeah, that appealed to me on every level.
3: Role-playing, I think it was probably Ryan Chaddock actually who got me started playing my first game but mm-hmm. so as to not inflate his ego too much i did remember <laughs> actually the first exposure that i had to dnd and i don't even think i realized it at the time was my brother sort of invited himself over to one of our neighbor's houses and they had an intellivision and the second licensed dungeon and dragons video game ever was adnd treasure of tarman which was just a dungeon crawler for intellivision and i love video games of course was totally fascinated with them since pong and I saw someone doing this game, and I was like, what? what is this? What is this world? As we got older, there were neighbors that my brother played with, and I recall tagging along with them because I thought it was interesting, and because I wanted to be the annoying little brother, right? I didn't want to be left out. They were playing a game of Dungeons and & Dragons, and they were just sort of like, you sit down and don't say anything, and I kept nagging and nagging them that I wanted to play the game. And they said, okay, well, what kind of a character do you want to play? And I said, well, I want to play a dragon. And of course you can't play a dragon in Dungeons and Dragons, but I think because they wanted to just shut me up, they let me play a dragon and they whipped out a character sheet very quickly. And then the DM, seeing that he probably wanted to get me off his back, said, okay, the adventure starts in a cave. You're too large to fit in the cave. And I'm like, well, can I try to squeeze in? And he's like, roll this dice. If it hits a 20, then you get to fit in the cave. And I rolled it and it wasn't a 20. And he's like, okay, too bad. You just have to wait here. (laughs) <laughs> oh, that was that was my first experience. Aww. And then the rest of it, I think, was Ryan and our mutual friend Rick playing in between periods in middle school.
0: I think the first time I played D&D was definitely junior high, high school. I forget when it was, but my friend Jake pulled me into it. And I was already a huge Tolkien fan. I'd read Lord of the Rings probably three times at that point. And when you were a nerd at that point in the 90s, you had to kind of love what you could get. You know, if you can't get the one you love, which would have been the Peter Jackson movie at the time, you love the one you're with, which was Ralph Bakshi. (laughs) And you took high fantasy and forms other than just the novels in any way you could get it. So the idea of Dungeons and Dragons was exciting to me. And this was the difference between this and video games, was that with video games, often they would tell me who I was playing, that I was Mario, I was Link. This is what my character could do. Here's the story you're in. These are the parameters. Or with Mike Tyson's punch out, this is the one thing you do to beat this level. Right. But with D&D, I could choose my character. And that alone was revolutionary because I never liked playing the big barbarian characters that they gave you in all these games. I wanted right. to play a wizard. Wizards were way cooler. Because if I play pretend... I can hit somebody with a sword in real life. I mean, I'll go to jail for it, sure. but I can still do it. There's nothing that the fighter does that I couldn't do myself, but I can't shoot fire out of my hands, and I've tried.
3: I can't I've try seen it.
0: I've
3: Who has tried? Is that like a suck your own dick sort of thing? <laughs> Everyone's tried, right? Yeah. Everyone's tried. Yeah, of course. What, what, no, is. that was
0: just a joke. I didn't really try to shoot fire. <laughs> That's stupid.
2: I can't believe you did that, <laughs> nerd.
0: It's one of those things where if I'm going to play pretend... I'm going to go fucking wild. I'm going to be somebody who has magical powers. Because in the end, what my real fantasy was, as much as I love high fantasy, I'm a superhero guy and I want powers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I want to do crazy things that I can't do in real life. And the crazier, the better. And with the wizard, it was a question of being clever to win the game. Because mm-hmm. the classical D&D wizard was somebody who, if you push them down a hill, they'd probably die. Yep. <laughs> They, You had a four-sided dice that you rolled. That was your hit points. So, I mean, the, the fighter had between one and ten points. And if you knocked out all of those and taught it to zero, he'd be dead. Yeah. With the wizard, at first level, best four.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Which means that if you got a really lucky slice with a dagger, you're pretty much gone. Yep. But you have the ability to cast magic. And at first, you got one spell. Which means you got to make that son of a bitch count. I like the idea of being put in that scenario mm-hmm. where I got to get creative. And again, the question of comparing this to video games with something like, say, Skyrim, which is an amazingly complex game. And the
3: entire Elder Scrolls trilogy borrows whole cloth from Dungeons & Dragons. Well,
0: the entire RPG video game genre yeah.
3: borrows from Dungeons yeah. & Dragons. You
2: can't name something that doesn't owe everything it is to D&D.
0: I like the idea of having that infinite possibilities. That's what I want out of Dungeons & Dragons is that In a game like Skyrim, which is amazing, which of course he said only exists because of the legacy of Dungeons and Dragons and Mm -hmm. is trying to match Dungeons and Dragons in the sheer amount of, I've got a problem. How do I solve that? Well, I've got literally hundreds of possibilities. But with a pen and paper, it's infinite. I get into a situation where there is no end to the number of things I can do. Let me give you an idea of something that happens in a game like Skyrim that drives me off the fucking wall. (laughs) (laughs) okay i'm playing a game that's largely open-ended gives me tons of options for defeating bad guys and opening dungeons and doors and clues and stuff like that but there's that limit i need a key to get through this locked door i just want to get through this door because it's important to the story oh wait there's a shopkeeper who's got the key oh problem solved right yep so i go to his shop but he won't give it to me unless i chase the rabbits out of his garden (laughs) okay i guess that's no problem i'll go out there the garden has a force field around it Okay, how do I get rid of that? What do do I do? Well, there's a uh, wizard in the tower outside of town, and he can get rid of it for me. Okay, problem solved. I can finally get through this door.
2: Oh, yeah, I'm sure the wizard won't want anything for his services.
0: No, no. (laughs) I have to cure his daughter's curse. Oh, come on. I have to defeat a troll to defeat this curse. Mm -hmm. Okay, all right. Where's this troll? (laughs) Troll's on top of a mountain. (laughs) But he has this one weakness. okay, what is it? It's his flower. Okay, it's at the bottom of this dungeon. Okay, I need this tower, so I'm going to go down to this dungeon. Oh, God, it's guarded by a werewolf. Just give me the fucking flower, please. No, I've got to answer a riddle. Yeah. (laughs) And it's like... (laughs) I get to the point where I say, you know what? Just give me the fucking key, shopkeeper. Kill the shopkeeper. I can kill a werewolf so I can kill you. Just give me the fucking key. (laughs) See, the beautiful thing with D&D is that I'm not forced to follow this path. I can actually sweet talk the shopkeeper. Mm -hmm. I can threaten the shopkeeper. Mm -hmm. I can do creative things. That the game hasn't anticipated. You
3: could wait until
0: the shopkeeper goes to sleep and break into his house and sure. steal the key. There's this infinite possibilities, and that's what I think is the real magic of D&D, that mm. despite the just amazing amount of detail and choices that are given in a video game nowadays, they still haven't managed to match. Right. That's what I want to get out of a Dungeons & Dragons game. I want the infinite possibilities. So I want to ask you guys, what do you guys want out of a Dungeons & Dragons game.
3: I don't know. Well, the last time that I played Dungeons & Dragons was also DM'd by none other than Ryan Chaddock in in L.A. And I think, Ryan, you can correct me if you're wrong, but I I think it was the first game that you DM'd where all the players, the DM not, but all the players were both smoking marijuana and drinking beer through the entire course of playing the game. Like you do. Right. As one does over the age of 30. (laughs) (laughs) (laughs)
1: Just... Yeah, that was an unusual game. <laughs> <laughs> I think you guys treated it like it was your regular, you know, Wednesday night poker night, right? With indie instead. Yeah, that was a good one.
3: <laughs> I guess you could expand it to say, well, what do you want out of RPGs? But I guess out of D and D specifically. I think everyone who is a nerd, everyone who has had the Lord of the Rings bug, or really everyone who's just watched television or movies has the sort of medieval fantasy element. I think you go to D&D because it's the default, right? I think that's the thing we're not really talking about and we haven't talked about yet is that D&D itself was the harbinger of an entire spectrum of role-playing games that didn't need to be couched in a fantasy, magic, and monsters, dungeons, labyrinthine kind of universe because the potentials for role playing are
1: infinite right
3: so i think what you expect from a DD game well i think you expect wizards monsters mostly focus on fighting i would imagine and less of a focus on following a story by other means more following a story by finding what encounters kills and trying to get magical items that's what i would expect
2: I'd say that's a fair assessment of what most people's expectations are for a Dungeons and Dragons game. Personally, I enjoy those little moments in a game where you are allowed by the mechanics of whatever game it is or by dint of of a well-told story to really give your character that moment where he gets to act like he would act. Hmm. I was a theater major, so the role-playing aspect of it is a lot more interesting to me, and it's fun for me to play a character who is either a serious do-gooder or just completely out for his own means for whatever reason. You know, choose your alignment. There's a broad spectrum there, obviously, but I like those moments in the game where you're allowed to actually do something or say something or have an action that is very specifically something that your character would do, whether or not it's something that is going to best fit the current situation or not but when you can actually stand up and say you know i don't think we should actually kill this guy because he hasn't done anything to us he's not really hurting anyone sure he's trying to round up magical stuff and be powerful but we can just take all of his stuff away we don't need to kill him guys but then the half-orc on the other side of the room says nope nope he's dead kill him he's going to come back and try to bite us in the ass later on and so now I'm actually in a conflict with one of my own party members over whether or not we should kill this. I was in a game recently. We had a, a chaotic evil witch in our party. And my guy was a lawful good ranger. And we came across this dagger that was called the heart popper. You, <laughs> seriously. You stab somebody with it. And if you get a critical hit, their heart pops out.
0: Oh, just like it says on the tin. Yeah, exactly. I mean,
2: no no false advertising happening there. <laughs> And then and then this witch had an ability whereby if he consumed the heart of another creature, he actually was able to beef up his powers for a limited amount of time. And I, my guy over here, Lawful Neutral on the other side of the table, or Neutral Good, I don't remember, one way or the other, I said, I don't care for that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> i'm not a big fan of eating people's <laughs> organs
2: what's it gonna take how am i gonna get that dagger out of your hands what can i give you what how much can i pay you for that thing because i really don't think that we need to have that walking around with us and that gave us that dialogue it gave me and this other character something to talk about every moment because it was all my guy was thinking about i was like get that ring and dagger away from him just take it and i couldn't steal it i had no thieving abilities so whatever
1: so ryan we live in a time now obviously very different from when we were kids when basically D&D was the only show in town at this point playing it what i'm expecting or what i'm looking for is in contrast to all those other games so i guess specifically from D&D what i'm looking for and what i'm expecting is you know a heroic story and not necessarily heroism from the sort of ethical perspective <laughs> <laughs> not that sort of like standing up for what you believe in necessarily although i mean i think that's there but i think that Dungeons and Dragons its name evokes exactly what it's about. It's about overcoming dangers that we would never face in real life and being given the tools to actually do that. And so in that sense, it's power fantasy, but it's also about telling a cool story. That's really what I go to it for, is for epic, interesting, heroic tales. You know, basically pulp, really.
0: So Ryan, if you're somebody who largely plays the Dungeon Master, that's the referee for the game, rather than one of the players, you're sort of the game board plus the narrator rather than an individual character. They're Aragorn, they're Gandalf, but you're sort of God. What do you look for in a game from that perspective that you don't get when you're a player? What is the difference between being a player of the game or being the Dungeon Master?
1: Oh, wow. I mean, that's a world of difference. To be honest, for me, it's still power fantasy. Being a DM is about getting to craft an entire world. I mean, Tolkien was really into world building. He obviously created his own synthetic language and populated middle earth with all these cool details and i think we're still echoing that love of worldcraft and if you talk to a dm that's really what they enjoy they enjoy building the details of their world and the plots and the schemes of their villains and the challenges and the dungeons themselves and it's all about crafting that and it's ironic too because i mean so much of the game is about actual human interaction i mean it's a game about collective storytelling but for the DM, so much of the game happens behind the screen beforehand. It's in preparation because that's the really cool part is that's the heroic and almost godlike part. Even if you're picking from already published material campaigns, you're still designing that adventure or figuring out how you're going to do it or picking your non-player characters and which roles you're going to get to play. The Dungeon Master gets to be more of an actor than the player characters. You
3: know, I was just thinking about it, Ryan, I didn't know that Chris was a theater guy. Yo. Ryan and I are theater guys. I don't know about you, Mike. I don't know if you were in drama at all. When no, you no.
0: Actually, that's something that I've noticed about most of the other people I've played with is right. that common thread mm-hmm. of theater. There's a
3: huge correlation between role-playing game players. And I mean, of course, by the stereotype, by the trope, there's Yo. not a lot of football playing jocks. <laughs> but I don't even think that's necessarily true. Hmm. But there does seem to be a preponderance, right, of people who are in the drama club who have that sort of spark in them where they want to be able to personify a character that goes there and is that a stereotype or is it a stereotype that's true
1: i wonder if it's not a correlation that has to do with being sort of a weirdo <laughs> you
3: know
1: in both cases uh, a little of a a little of b i think I, I think
0: a lot of it is that with dungeons and dragons as a player or as a dm i think too that you are playing a role you're putting on a character and personifying that character during the course of this game That character could be someone that is a lot like you, or it could be someone that's nothing like you. I've Mm. played both before. I once played a thief character who was completely in it for himself, who was always looking for ways to humiliate other people. His motivating factor was that it was fun to watch people fall down and to tell (laughs) himself that he was really smart. And I've played characters... That that
2: one was pretty easy for you then. That was wonderful.
0: (laughs) I played a character who was an arrogant moron once, Mm -hmm. where you're playing a guy who you know is not smart, but thinks that he's brilliant. Yeah and yeah. is also an asshole to everybody. And the fun thing with that is that sometimes the line between yourself and this character gets rather blurred, and people who don't know you a lot outside of the game right. may think of you in that way, Exactly. and you sort of have to break like, no, I know I'm being a dick. Right. Or sometimes you play a character who's very heroic and giving, and really is what they call in the game that lawful, good, superheroic character who is the paragon of virtue, who always looks for people who are in trouble, people who are hurting, and trying to alleviate that pain. So I do like playing a little bit of both. And I think a theater person would see a lot of fun in that because not only are they working with a script that was written for them, Mm -hmm. they're crafting the script as they go. And you don't know where the scene is going to go. You're basically doing a form of improv. Mm -hmm. Except you have these rules and you're like, okay, there's a fight now. And unlike those games of pretend you had as a kid, there's a way (laughs) to decide that you can roll a
3: dice. Yeah, I always hated playing fighting with my brother because neither of us would ever concede anyone would actually win, right? (laughs) <laughs> in a and in Dungeons & Dragons, at least you can have a authoritative, you win or you lose.
1: I almost brought this up earlier. Casey, do you remember when we first started playing D&D, we played it without rules?
3: We did, actually. Oh, because it was, why bother half to long the books to school? We would just keep either, I don't even know if we had character sheets.
1: Right. And I was inducted into that before I actually played the real game. And so actually tackling the rules of the game was just daunting. Right. This idea that I would have to roleplay with rules was just crazy to me.
0: But that's the real fun of it is that with a DM, I know that they can spend months crafting this world and these plot twists that they're really proud of. And a player can throw that all down (laughs) the toilet in a second because they make that one decision that you're not supposed to make. And sometimes if you're too rigid as a dungeon master, the players can sometimes rebel against you. And I've been part of a player rebellion before. I remember I was playing years ago our group of characters were being stalked and harassed by this sorcerer who would appear Wizard of Oz head style above us <laughs> and taunt us and say, you can't defeat me. You were nothing before my power. I mean, this is real Dr. Doom speechifying mm-hmm. and he would never fight us. And it started to get really annoying. You're like, you know what? How about you just fucking fight us? If we're so weak and we're so powerless before you, why do you feel the need to challenge us all the time? Why are you throwing <laughs> bad guys at us? You know, fight. We want to fight right now. And the bad guys like, No. no, (laughs) That is
2: not in my master plan.
0: You will wait. We've actually done that to groups of villains before where the villains are threatening us. We're like, you know what? No, we're not going to fight you. We refuse. And the bad guys wouldn't initiate combat. They wouldn't. I mean, this is the obvious way that... The dungeon master wouldn't have them start the fight. They wanted us to start it. And we just got into a shouting match with a group of orcs.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah? Well, you're funny looking.
0: Like, no, we're not going to. You know what? We're sick of you guys following us around. (laughs) Eventually, it came to the point where the DM just broke character, looked at us and said, you're supposed to fight them. (laughs) And that right then we put our foot. No, (laughs) no, there's an easy way to start this fight. Guy runs at you with an axe. Of course, I'm going to defend myself. I'm not going to keep talking. But he wouldn't do
1: it. It was the weirdest,
0: most rigid Dungeon Master Uh moment I've ever had in a game.
1: But it's not unusual, right? I no. Mean, we, there's an ethical onus on players to be murderous and want to take things from less civilized people. <laughs>
2: right. Yeah. yeah. it's the object of the game.
0: You basically go in and rob people and take their stuff and yeah. go, oh, hey, there's a treasure chest full of gems and swords. I'm going to take those. But if you want, and I've heard this before from Dungeon Masters, that if you want to get the players to do anything, if you want them to go into the jaws of hell itself, you steal from them.
2: Yep. Yep. that will work nearly every time guys that we are so
0: likely to wander in and not respect the property rights of non-player characters but the minute
2: the minute they took it
0: they took it from me it doesn't yeah. matter if it's valuable it doesn't yeah. matter if it's
2: just now it's personal
0: yeah it's personal that was mine that's just the ammo for my sling you took a quarrel full of bolts I can go buy another one but I will follow nope. you into a blizzard
2: yep got a character right now with a quiver of adamantium arrows if you will that's what they boil down to and they are magically enhanced so that they actually replenish themselves as long as i don't fire that last one they'll grow back if you took that away from my character right now man forget it there is not a plane you know the fire elemental plane any of those things. i wouldn't cross to get that quiver of arrows back man it's very special to me i would get very very upset
0: But getting back to this question of the rules that we play imagination, but eventually we're going to have to say, I shot you. No, you shot me. Mm -hmm. No, no, no. I had a shield on. I got you first. Yeah, you actually have to have a character sheet that said that you had that magic force field Mm -hmm. on now. So we're actually going to talk about the rules of Dungeons and Dragons. It was the first role playing game of this type. That doesn't necessarily mean the system is the best, because obviously other systems, not just because of licensing rights, have gone in radically different directions. But the actual game itself, now that it has all that competition from World of Warcraft, from Skyrim, how does that system hold
2: up? Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I tell you what, I've been playing a lot of Pathfinder lately, so uh, I couldn't Mm -hmm. tell you for sure. Honestly, the last couple of iterations of Dungeons & Dragons have come under a lot, a lot of fire from the players and from the fans and from people who have been playing D&D their entire lives and have gone through all these different changes and the, the rule systems and how different things work. From 3 to 3.5, and now this new system that's coming out after the Sundering, I I really... I I don't know. I couldn't tell you exactly how well it holds up anymore. One of the things that Pathfinder does is it's basically D&D 2.5, I guess you could call it. Hmm. It takes a lot of the same systems, but boils it all down to just a couple of D20 rolls. It really streamlines everything but on the flip side of that coin it's a little overpowered at times Mm -hmm. that same archer i was talking about a moment ago he can fire as a full round action he can fire five times five times
0: that's a lot yes i mean firing once is hard i've fired a bow in real life but even if i'm you know freaking green arrow here that's a Mm -hmm. lot of stuff i mean even with the robin hood (laughs) men in tights uh, bow with the the five arrows on it
2: yeah and that's essentially what he's doing he's he's got a specialization in his bow he's got these when you level up or when you when you gain experience you get the opportunity to purchase bonuses if you will to make your character a little bit more powerful in, in one way or another but if you game the system just right You come up with a character who can fire his adamantium arrows five in a row in one action, and I'm taking down giants, literally. I mean, the the last campaign we ran, I killed a giant with one, essentially one hit.
0: This is something I've heard as a complaint, because Dungeons & Dragons started out as something where I think the learning curve was much sharper for the individual characters, Mm -hmm. and it really relied on you being a part of a group. Yes. You weren't able to just plow through a video, you know, like in a video game multiplayer, where sometimes you'll have one player on this game who's just not playing as a team. They're running ahead, taking all the items, taking all the bonuses and then running to the end. And you're left to sort of follow in their wake And deal with all the things that they've made angry. Yeah, That in the first generation of D&D did not work because... Couldn't work. Again, your first wizard, you had one spell, you got to make it count. And if you miss, you better hope only going to hit you with like a little club and that they miss most of the way. And even with the fighter, you sort of needed the other people to balance out your weaknesses. And something I've seen a lot in later generations of D&D, whether it's addition... 3, 3.5, 4, which I played once at a meetup a couple of years ago, mm-hmm. is it feels a lot more like I'm playing World of Warcraft with paper rather than with a keyboard and
2: mouse. I, do you think it's been reverse contaminated that way?
1: I think it very literally is, in many ways, doing that. <laughs> I mean, I'm not sure I agree that that's it's a negative. I think that it's keeping up with the times in terms of what we want. We don't necessarily want to just die, right? Not every player. And and D&D has a broader audience than it used to.
0: That's true. I mean, you want to grab onto something that's popular, but doesn't the vulnerability of a character force you to be clever? In ways that you wouldn't if you had, say, as a wizard in the newer d and I can start out with like five or six spells, and I'm a lot more secure, and I don't rely on my teammates as much to protect me. And to make that one spell count, it feels like I'm not as vulnerable now, and I, maybe I don't have to fall back on my brain as much as I did when I was playing a wizard 10, 15 years ago.
1: I think it's a matter of taste. It would be hard to argue either way. Because you could easily say that, okay, well, maybe it's fun the first time your wizard dies because you were not quite smart. But the you know, third or fourth time, eventually you'd like to play a game where you know your brains aren't just about survival. It's also about puzzling things out mm-hmm. and going on adventures and being heroic. I think it could be argued that it's just a different game now. It's just not about just hardscrabble survival. And I, I would say that even in third edition, you had a pretty difficult time of it. I mean, a wizard's still only getting a die four hit points. Yeah, They might get a little bit more if they've got a pretty good constitution, but it's still a die four for their initial starting hit points. It's not until fourth edition where they front-loaded a lot of hit points that you're talking about what they always call the, what is it, the boffing, or the, <laughs> the, the, the wiffle bat weapons, the basically. The wiffle bat weapons, yeah. Yeah, where, you know, you're not doing a lot of damage, you're not taking a lot of damage, and it's not very scary. But there are easy remedies for fixing that. I think the real question is, when you're saying whether D&D has kept up with the times is, does Pathfinder count? Because Pathfinder is not published by Wizards of the Coast, who nope. owns D&D these days, but it's published under the open game license, which was developed under the third edition rules. Right. So it's an extrapolation of D&D. I mean, it's the rules of D&D and then taken another step forward. And it's, I think, intended to reflect the tastes of the time. When I talk to my local retailer, they're saying that Pathfinder is outselling D&D for them.
2: Oh, head and shoulders, that happens even in your uh, bookstores, I gotta tell you. Sure. People are coming in looking for Pathfinder material, and it is D&D. I mean, there's no... We could sit here and talk about how the, the rules are different in the open game license and da da da, da. It's Dungeons and Dragons.
0: <laughs> it seems like sure. it's crowdsourced rules, though. The right. open right. game right. license that they're saying that rather than in the 70s and 80s and 90s, where if you wanted to create your own fantasy RPG, you had to build the rules from scratch. Yep. So here's the real question to you guys. There's a lot of role players in this room. Is the open gaming license a good thing for RPGs as a general thing, that people can now use the standard rules of D&D? Or is this something that's stifling different new systems? Or is the idea of creating a new system something that you can't prevent through the popularity or open license of something like the Dungeons & Dragons D20 system?
1: You know, as someone who publishes under uh, (laughs) a license, not for (laughs) D&D, but for another game, I think I'm biased in saying that, but I'm still going to say it, the availability to participate in the market is amazing, and I think it's amazing for the hobby. I think that, in general, being able to have independent publishers in these games, as opposed to them having to invent an entirely new rule system and hope that people are willing to learn that new rule system, <laughs> I think it's great for d d that there was an explosion in the early 2000s of people participating in that market. I think that's what drove it forward.
3: Isn't that sort of a hallmark of tabletop role playing to begin with? I was just reading on the Wikipedia page for Dungeons & Dragons that the first adventure module was basically created in 1976 by someone who wasn't TSR. (laughs) And basically, because it was at the very beginning and because I guess TSR probably thought, well, we could use all the help we could get. They actually helped them print and distribute this module on behalf of these people to effectively give it the distribution so they had a little bit more flavor to it. Now, Ryan, you can correct me if I'm wrong. Anyone who wants to make an adventure for any existing role-playing system is allowed to publish them because of the way the copyright law is about gaming rules. It's just that you can't use the copyrighted names without permission. Is that right?
1: In the U.S., that's my understanding, is that rules can't be copyrighted, but all of the surrounding stuff. So, you could make your own version of Monopoly that had different names and stuff. Right. That's my understanding. You know, I'm not a lawyer.
3: Well, this is the thing because I heard an interview with Jordan Weissman, who's the guy who created the Shadowrun RPG. And Jordan Weissman started FASA basically by making his custom character sheet templates for Dungeons and Dragons that he created himself with graphing paper and took it to his local print shop and printed out copies and sold them. Went around to all the places in Illinois that he was living in and was able to sell them. And he started his company that way. And that sort of ground up entrepreneurial spirit that is built on the back of existing systems, I think is part of the interesting thing about role playing games is that it's a publishing model, right? And publishing is really fucking hard to do. There's very small margins, you have to print things, stock is a problem. And of course, starting off with something that was basically a new type of medium, the very fact that role playing games from the beginning sort of had this bootstrapping idea about, Well, anyone could come in and make their own adventure, or anyone could make a new character sheet, or fuck, anyone could take the rules and reinvent them and do a similar setting, as long as they weren't tripping on anyone's copyrighted names, and make a better game. Isn't that what essentially people have done with Pathfinder? I would assume so. Yeah.
1: But third edition with the open game license was a change from the past. Previous to that, TSR was, I believe, fairly litigious for like a decade. You know, you just couldn't do it, though. I mean, if somebody's right. just printing up little pamphlets or modules and, and selling them in their local game stores, they can't go after them. So there's always been an underground of that to D&D, but I don't think it was necessarily on the level until 3.0. And I think that the open game license took advantage of people's interest in... Because I think that most GMs think that they could write just as good of modules as the ones they're buying. Sure, I think they're wrong, but I think they do <laughs> think that you know, that gave them the opportunity. I think we're seeing a new revolution in the fact that people have tablets so much these days that they are now willing to buy PDF versions of a lot of these modules. And so you don't have to worry about the really tight margins necessarily that a print model would. Hmm. I think the PDF distribution model is completely different. And we're going to see a huge change in the gaming world. (laughs) <laughs> and I can I can speak from first-hand experience that a very small investment on my own part and some time, I've created a game, a module that's essentially selling without me having to put anything else into it. That's a pretty amazing business, to be honest.
0: So one thing that I mentioned before was that geekdom and geek passions, things like science fiction, high fantasy comic books, superheroes, have really broken into the mainstream in a way that they weren't in our adolescence, in our childhoods. And this has really happened fast in the last decade. <laughs> Yep. Liar!
3: They haven't!
0: (laughs) You again with your Star Wars argument. That is not Uh,
1: the case. We will deal with that later, sir. That's for another time.
0: But there's never been an easier time to be a nerd or a geek. I think we can all agree on that. Yes. Loving nerdy things is something that used to warrant you a beating if you did it too overtly back in the day, (laughs) or a swirly or a wedgie or whatever the wonderful little euphemism for bullying
3: is. Back in the golden age of bullying. <laughs>
0: golden age of bullying. As all of these things, Doctor Who, Star Wars, Star Trek, these will all become mainstream. Lord of the Rings. Yes. There we go. Why is it the DD has remained in this weird little corner of geekdom that it feels like it's a bit too nerdy? That somebody can love all of these other things, they can accept... The love of other people for superheroes and and all of these other things that were once nerdy but dungeons and dragons seems to still be in that basement as something that puts people off why is it not mainstream too
3: i would say it's sheer ignorance I related this story to you before, Mike, and I think it bears telling a mutual friend of ours. I was at his birthday party, and he had a a lady friend of his that was there who'd flown in, and we were talking about all sorts of subjects, and the subject of role-playing games came up, and her immediate response was, it was a knee-jerk reaction, was, oh, don't even talk to me about Dungeons & Dragons, or whatever it was that we were saying. And she had already explained to me that she had two young children of her own. She was a school teacher. She seemed like she was a fairly open person as far as nerd culture was concerned. But in this one area, her immediate response was, oh, don't talk to me about that. Like, you would imagine a 13-year-old girl would respond when talking about Dungeons and & Dragons. And so I had, I said, stop. I would. You don't know this, so I'll explain it to you. A role-playing game is essentially a story that is created on the fly, out of the imagination of players. It's a social setting that allows people to express themselves, to assume a character, and to tell a story together. In a framework of rules, it's actually something that could help growing minds and flourish imagination and increase sociability in children. I think all children should role play if they want to actually role play. So to sort of slap this aversion on top of it, this immediate reaction to say, oh, don't talk. It's so awful. Don't talk to me about that. I had to, you know, I had to give her a 180. I had to say, no, this is not something that we want to push aside as being unwelcome. We should embrace it because it could help your child grow. This is just one anecdote that I have, and I think that it's just ignorance. I think that it's just like there was a time before when people thought homosexuality was yucky, and it was because the culture said something and people never knew that they met people who were homosexuals. And when people started to, by and large, it was not so big of a deal. And right now, LARPers and tabletop RPG gamers are still that seething mass that is hidden away from society. (laughs) Let
1: me just challenge, push back a little bit there. (laughs) I mean, I think you're right that there is a lot of ignorance about d I think people in general kind of know what it is. I mean, Freaks and Geeks and a few other things have really brought it to, you know, some, I, I think people in general have seen it or they know someone who plays it. I think that they're not in it for the exact reason that Mike mentioned early in the podcast, which was that we as geeks use it as the cipher. It is the secret password. The shibboleth, and if you will. We don't, and what is the point of a password to get through this gateway into the uber-super-nerddom if it isn't exclusive? Right. d d is designed to be arcane. It has the word arcane all over it, and it is it is full. I mean, look at the history of the design of D&D. You had AD&D and, and original D&D being published at the same time, one with streamlined rules and one without them. And Advanced D&D was the one with all these extra rules and they came up with everything. It was more and more and more arcane and more and more for the nerdier person. That's the one that won out. And when they moved to 3rd Ed, they really embraced the AD&D model. And, you know, when you're talking about Pathfinder, the fact that a third party had to come up with a game that maybe streamlined things a little bit more... I think says something about D&D itself, about the people who make it and the people who are the core audience, which is that they actually seem to want, on some level, this cipher to exist. I ran a club on my campus in college recently that just invited anybody to come and play D&D and we'd teach you. It was pretty massive, the number of people. I mean, we often had to talk them off the ledge because they were like, (laughs) I'm too dumb or "You know, I don't already know it. And it's like, yeah, that's the point of learning it and so and we it was massive we had huge turnout we couldn't facilitate enough dungeon masters to handle the interest just because i put on a flyer it said everybody who goes to college should play D D once all of a sudden we got you know emails and emails and emails from people saying okay i'm ready excellent you know?
2: well that, that's 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 really that's actually kind of amazing right it, but I think you're right about gamers, role-playing gamers especially, using Dungeons & Dragons and other systems like that as sort of their cipher. But that doesn't really explain to me the stigma that role-playing games in general have. And that's kind of confusing. Well, okay, let let me back that up about a half a step. It's not confusing to me. I think I have an idea of why it still is a problem like that. But it's sort of confounding in this day and age, if you will. And that is the simple fact that our American culture is based on Hugely outdated puritanical mores That have caused so many problems With so many different things And it's the reason why it took so long For people to be accepting of people Who are openly homosexual To be accepting of other races And other cultures and things like that Because it's the other And it is not something that we are familiar And comfortable with But also because you look at a game Like Dungeons and Dragons From a stranger's viewpoint And what you see is people Talking in their own language And behaving in a very peculiar fashion Something that wouldn't go on In normal, polite, quote-unquote society but then you get the people who are concerned because you are play acting murders and vicious acts and theft and a witchcraft, you know, Ooh, casting magical spells. I think that still has a lot to do with general society's rejection of role-playing games in general and whether i'm right or wrong is neither here nor there because i've got the microphone right now but the point (laughs) is i think that a lot of times the person who introduced herself to casey by saying oh don't don't know role-playing games they don't know they don't know they haven't been given that opportunity to find out that it's a game like any other game if you play monopoly you are role-playing Maybe not to the same level that someone who's playing Dungeons and Dragons (laughs) is, certainly. But you are role-playing because you are not, in fact, a land developer or a millionaire. You are not a tiny little car driving around Atlantic City over and over and over again. But a lot of the
0: the same goals are there. You're still ruthlessly taking people's stuff.
2: Absolutely. Greedy bastards.
0: (laughs) I'm really glad you brought this up, Chris, because it's really impossible to talk about Dungeons and Dragons without talking about the massive moral panic against them in the 70s and 80s. Oh, Lord Almighty. (laughs) There are now dozens of these debunked reports of murders motivated by this game. We're talking about this game being treated as if it's a gateway drug to weird suburban satanic cults. (laughs) that are involved in human sacrifices, as if the Indiana Jones Temple of Doom sacrifice scene is happening in your neighbor's basement right now. People are ripping hearts out and eating babies. Well, not my neighbor. And <laughs> Bathing in blood. And partially on one hand, I played a lot of D&D, and I've read a lot of anti-D&D propaganda, yeah. and I see the claims that are made against it are so cartoonish that I feel a little bit ripped off by my own d yeah, experience. exactly.
2: I never once got the idea that I could go out and fly or cast magic spells on my own by chanting to Baal's above or whatever, Bahamut or whatever... I never had. That. I didn't get that.
3: And sadly, I never got propositioned to have sex in a coven or take psychedelic drugs as a result of Dungeons & Dragons. <laughs> not which, would, which would have once. been awesome.
0: It would have been great.
3: Dungeons & Dragons, if anything
0: else, inoculated you against those <laughs> yeah. sorts of experiences. Oh,
2: you play Dungeons & Dragons? <laughs> you are not welcome in our cult. It's like,
0: <laughs> where's the orgy happening? <laughs> I never get to cast real magic. But again... It really plays into this generational sequence of what they call moral panics. Mm -hmm. And these things have been directed about so many parts of our culture. And this is just a list of a couple of the things. And I know I'm missing a bunch (laughs) comic books, jazz music, leather (laughs) jackets, zoot suits, which are actually illegal in many places. Yep. Because they created crime. Mm. The Beatles, video games, adult lyrics and music, Elvis's shaking hips, Harry Potter heavy metal music. These all fall under the umbrella of what I like to refer to as the war on fun.
2: Yes, (laughs) (laughs) clearly.
0: You talked about that puritanical undercurrent in our culture, and I think that it pops up and flares up every so often. And whenever there's something new in our culture, something that's popular and fun and isn't Bible study, Mm -hmm. there's going to be a certain kind of angry moral police officer out there that is going to want to say that that's the hand of Satan.
3: Ruin our kids' minds. This is the big thing that I wanted to prepare for when I was talking about it is you and I watched Mazes and Monsters, the Tom oh, Hanks movie in preparation so for this. But also there was a 60 Minutes piece in 1985 where Ed Bradley interviewed Patricia Pulling, who was the woman whose son committed suicide. And she assumed that the reason why he committed suicide was Dungeons and Dragons because he played it. And she started bad, bothered about Dungeons and Dragons, basically a one woman <laughs> advocacy, anti-D&D bothered. advocacy group. Yes, they're bothered just just bothered <laughs> Just kind of bothered. bothered by D&D. If you want to read a great takedown, Michael Stackpole, who is a guy who's been an RPG writer forever, he's got like a website up that has it. But it's basically your alarmist evangelical claptrap. I grew up, my family was evangelical, and my brother played Dungeons and & Dragons and had Dragonlance novels lying around all the time, and it didn't seem to be a big contradiction. But here's one thing that I just couldn't grok between that is these people were drawing a distinction between the type of make-believe in Dungeons and Dragons. But I saw the type of make-believe that happens when you're in a church where people are speaking in tongues or seeing a visiting speaker try to look at scripture to prove whether or not dinosaurs existed at Bible times. That seemed to be the kind of flights of imagination that adults took far more seriously than teenagers did when they were playing Dungeons & Dragons. And also one of the reasons why I never bought the idea that kids have a hard time distinguishing fantasy from reality. Because I saw the Christian belief in the devil and spirits and demons is to be less believable than anything else and the fact that people fucking took it seriously. But then a lot of the mythology
0: that went into Dungeons & Dragons, a lot of it came out of multiple mythologies and religions and you look at the Monster Manual and you will see things that Uh, are basically just... Monstrous Manual? Oh, the, you're talking about the first edition, Monstrous Manual, before it became the Monster Manual. Yes.
2: <laughs> well, it's the Monstrous Manual again now. They, they reestablished it. it.
0: So when Baal becomes not just some rival <laughs> god yeah. from a book, but you actually see his spells in his armor class, and you can actually instigate a fight with him, yeah. someone will see that, who is in the mindset of all of this stuff is real, all of this stuff is around us, we're in a constant war with invisible monsters who mm-hmm. want to send us to hell. And you see a bunch of those invisible monsters in Johnny's book. And the cover of the player's handbook is a bunch of guys stealing the gem eyes out of a demonic idol. (laughs) All it takes for somebody who's not curious who is given to flights of fancy and angry moral reactions to things Mm. that they are not familiar with because they did not grow up with it. Parents in the 1970s and 80s did not grow up playing Dungeons and Dragons. So they had no filter to go through with this, no prism to understand this. Just like in the 1950s, parents were saying that reading comic books drove their kids to commit murders and crimes because they didn't grow up reading comic books. So what we really see is the next generation goes, wow, I did that and I'm not a murderer. That's just silly. You're not going to see a lot of evangelicals freaking out about Dungeons and Dragons anymore. Except for Pat Robertson, who last year railed against Dungeons and Dragons because he was going to party like it was 1984. <laughs> it was the weirdest thing ever. It's like, you do know that that's about five moral panics ago, Pat. <laughs> yeah, in the no, now. but I
1: can understand their fear. I mean, even if they didn't, let's say that they understand, they know that D&D doesn't teach you spells. Right? No. They know that. Most of them probably know that. Even that, if I were a Christian, and I'm not, I would be concerned with D&D because, okay, there's four of us on this panel. How many of us are atheists? I am. <laughs> All
3: right.
2: Four out of four? No, no. Three out of four. Three oh, out of okay. four. I absolutely believe in God.
3: <laughs> and yet, you have not <laughs> no. worshipped Satan or cast <laughs> Listen, spells in your meantime? Absolutely. No, exactly. That's the thing. I don't think that this
2: kind of ridiculousness, as I indicate myself, could happen purely by chance. I don't... There's got to be a higher power involved.
1: Okay. Okay, but you know what I'm saying. Where I think that it pulls you away, at the very least, from the Christian faith. (laughs) I don't want to be as critical as Casey. I think has already been at this point. But I, I think that the Christian faith is not about critical thinking as much. Not about scientific inquiry. No. D&D is what leads you there. I mean, you hang out with nerds, and you take science classes, and you become a sciencey person when you play D&D.
0: And it becomes harder to be Pat Robertson, certainly. Right. Yes, certainly. <laughs> and yeah. I think the other thing with critical analysis, though, too, is that if you hear these radically crazy stories about this devil worship and murders happening by the literally thousands... If you're slightly critical uh, yeah. of those stories, yeah. they fall apart in a moment. But if you're someone who's caught up in the emotion of, oh my God, this speaker said something, it must be true. right? Then it's really easy to believe that stuff because all it takes nowadays certainly is a Google search to go, are there really
3: thousands of missing people?
2: Oh, no. Hey, somebody must have their facts incorrect there.
3: Well, we need to say nothing more than the fact that Gary Gygax himself was a Christian and David Arneson, who was the co-writer of mm-hmm. Chainmail and Dungeons Dragons, is a born-again Christian. And J.R.R. Tolkien, who's myth- mythology that Dungeons and Dragons is largely based on, was a devout Catholic. Right. Right. There was a great post that Boing Boing had in December of last year about Gary Gygax had written in an angry rant to a magazine about why he, as a Christian, doesn't celebrate Christmas. And he listed all of the reasons why (laughs) the various pagan holidays that were sort of ripped off and folded into Christmas. So not only was Gygax a Christian, but he was the kind that would get enough ire to write into a magazine when he got upset about some.
0: But he's also the sort of person who's put all of those same pagan holidays into his book. Right. He's done the research.
3: But I mean, it is not a mutually exclusive category. You know what I'm saying? It's not mutually exclusive. So in that respect, it's not a war of D&D versus Christianity.
0: No, I think that people can find a way to reconcile their belief system with the things that they enjoy. Mm -hmm. And there are people who can't. There's people who are so bothered by certain things. And again, I'm talking about the people like the Pat Robertsons who don't enjoy anything other than the Jesus stuff. And if something is fun and not the Jesus stuff, they rail against it because they feel threatened by it. Sure. Where I think most well-rounded people have hobbies.
2: There we are. (laughs) And I think most people can, can believe
0: all sorts of things in real life, but also... Fall into a fantasy world. Again, I'm someone who doesn't believe in the supernatural, but why do I always play wizards? I like to imagine Mm. that I'm in a world that has these sort of supernatural things that I don't adhere to in the real world, but again, it's a game of imagination.
2: Is the concern there then? Your parents see you doing this and playing a wizard in, in your game and casting magic spells and using incantations and things like that. Are they concerned that you are now going to investigate whether or not that is actually possible? That you're going to go and start delving into the occult? I mean, is that the fear? like you said about a gateway drug for cults and things like that if i'm playing a wizard and i'm casting spells and i'm doing these things am i so influenced by what i'm doing that i'm now curious about whether or not i can do it in the really real world and that applies to every single aspect of it and i feel like that's the fear
3: that applies to every movie and television show
2: every movie television show video games everything you do that allows you to perform an action that is outside of normal polite society i I, I just love
3: that's the fear in michael stackpole's response to patricia pulling's the bad thing he says because she lists not only Dungeons and dragons but like seven or eight different role-playing games that might be threats to lure young children to cults or whatever and he was saying if your child is playing for example wolf meow the role-playing game of cats and dogs do you (laughs) do you you seriously believe that it's someone's going to lure your child in with, with wolf meow long before you start rolling dice
0: children are already pretending to be cats and dogs there you are. Yeah. how many kids out there say i want to be a bird when i grow up right i mean that's nothing new and i think it's to be that overly sensitive about culture only puts yourself on the outside of it and if you want to be someone who has a serious influence on how culture moves pat robertson is not the way to do it he's becoming more and more dinosaur every day and of course The modern evangelical movements, I think, are a lot more cagey about getting involved in culture fights. And there are those people out there, like the one million moms going after Green Lantern or Archie Comics for having gay characters in it. Right. But the claims that they make are a lot smaller than the ones made against Dungeons and Dragons in the 80s, where there's like this insurgent almost like terrorist cells that mm-hmm. were around the country of witches and covens and people committing murder and eating each other. That's such insane claims that especially in the world of the internet now, I don't think those sorts of claims could continue to exist. No, you,
2: you can't hold water in the in the information age, and that's really what it is. They're struggling to find newer, bigger, badder things to get upset about, and they're not finding them. So what? They, like Pat Robertson, he goes back to the whale. I mean, he goes he says, uh, oh yeah, that, Dungeons is right. that's still a thing, right? Yeah, well, let's bag on that for a little while.
0: And I'm really glad you brought up Maces and Monsters, Casey, because. Me too. That movie <laughs> is both so ridiculous that it's wonderful, and also not ridiculous enough to match the crazier evangelical claims. It seems like Right. they tried to keep it fairly secular panic in that movie. Yeah, they
3: didn't even mention suicide, or, the, well, they tried to depict suicide, but they didn't mention devil or cult even once. Not The words were never spoken. The
0: in claims the movie. of the supernatural and being a gateway drug to, as you say, trying to find out if wizard powers are real. Right. That's something that never came up. What I found really funny about that movie is that it actually didn't do a very good job of making the game scary. It just said that certain imagination-based games aren't necessarily congruable to somebody who has mental problems. Yeah, previous mentalists. No,
3: but right. I thought was great. And of course, we'd heard about the synopsis of it beforehand, but sure. Mike and I w- watched it last week, and I find it ironic that, spoiler alert, in the <laughs> end, Tom Hanks, who is the main character who goes crazy and believes that he's... pardue a holy man. Pardue a holy man, yes. Mm. He runs away from college and his three friends, who they met playing Mazes and Monsters, they actually use the skills they learned playing (laughs) Mazes and Monsters. To find out where he is, they learn map reading, logic, yeah. speculation, you know, like they actually piece together clues. They're actually exercising the same skills from the game to rescue their friend, which they do end up intervening and saving his life.
2: Very, like, very mixed message well, in this yeah, movie. What's
3: the? Of course, they spend the entire time talking about how having the actors do this really awful, overly theatrical, sketchy dialogue where they go, I'm Pardue. And when they speak, they speak in all <laughs> the ways that you would expect a B movie actor or C movie actor mm-hmm. to speak. And I walk into the room, beware. But yeah, this is again a
0: a movie about a game made and written and based on a book by people who never played that game, who showed not the least bit of interest in learning that game, who were never interested in interviewing people who had played that game and that's why you have people say things like oh you're 8th level now oh well that's great you can start creating your own scenarios I'm like oh I'm sorry I... <laughs> when I'm playing Dungeons and Dragons I play a certain level I can just start going off into the corner and playing by myself now
1: yeah you gotta ask people what level Dungeon Master they are that's, yeah, oh, that's, how, that's the trick
0: <laughs> and I think that's Beautiful. how people get
1: caught up in that whole
0: cult thing the idea of you having this rank you know I'm the Grand High Negus. Yeah. yeah and right. I have yes. these powers in this robe and even if you're in another game you have to recognize My authority.
2: (laughs) They hear Secret Society. They hear Scientology when you start talking about your level and what you've attained, what you've been able to achieve (laughs) by your contribution to the greater. It's ridiculous, but I never really thought about it in that way. But that's exactly right. That's what people hear.
0: Yeah, it's funny because I look at the movie then, and again, like you said, Casey, the three other characters in the movie, the people who played Dungeons and Dragons, or in this case, Mazes and Monsters, just as heavily as Tom Hanks does. They're living their lives, they can separate fantasy from reality, and even the one of them who's always wearing, like, a hard hat or Kaiser helmet, he's the weird one of the group. He seems to be fairly well-adjusted and can separate his fantasy life from his real college life. But it seemed like the problem here was mental illness and right. not the game. But the, even the movie didn't seem to get its own message.
1: When we were talking about the levels seemed to imply initiation into some kind of cult, I remember my great-grandmother interrogating me over... D&D and specifically mentioning that it was called Advanced Dungeons and Dragons <laughs> what I was playing like it was more advanced than a previous version because I had moved a deeper into the cult there is. Yeah. <laughs> you, you've-,
2: you've attained the maximum level in regular Dungeons and Dragons now, now young initiate you are ready for Advanced Dungeons <laughs> right. and Dragons yeah <laughs> Touch your tongue to mine and we shall proceed.
1: Years later, she ruined all my D&D books with no. a hose. Oh,
2: <laughs> unbelievable. That is...
1: Uh, I was 3.0, who cares? Oh, okay, good call. <laughs> Good point. My mom, when I was a kid, bought into this. I don't know where she must have got it from. But So she had told me when I was pretty young that D&D was not allowed in the house. And my mom had made a lot of these proclamations where we weren't allowed to have guns and things like that. And, of course, eventually those ideas went away, always. Like, we would just wear her down. And <laughs> With I remember, the guns, especially. Right. So I was playing D&D for probably about a year before I bought the book. And I think I actually bought another role-playing game before I bought D&D. I think I bought Cyberpunk 2020.
2: Oh, now you're talking.
1: I've got it right here. That was, I think, my first game that I bought. So she didn't know what that was, so that was totally okay. But then I finally had to buy AD&D, and that was AD&D 2nd Edition, and it was just so obvious that that was what it was. You know, the guy riding the horse with the sword or something on the front, and it was just so fucking obvious it was D&D. And so I had to hide it around the house. And eventually, so my brother finds out about it, and I'm like, okay, you cannot tell Mom and Dad. And then eventually, my dad's... Getting cheese or something out of the fridge and I'm like, hey, take a look what I got. And he's like, Awesome. You know? And so eventually I just sort of came out to my mom. <laughs> and I was like, Dad knows and he thinks it's cool. And this was twenty bucks. Chris's mom thinks this is okay. <laughs> For the
3: record, Ryan's dad is like one of the coolest guys that has ever existed. Sweet.
1: It's funny
0: because I I think now looking back on it. This stigma against Dungeons and Dragons that seems to have continued to this day, it must have come out of this moral panic. The idea that there's something weird about the people who are gathering in their basement and doing these weird little rituals, other than I just go to a movie where there's lasers and Wookiees and wizards and stuff.
3: That's a strange thing, because I also wanted to relate a personal anecdote. My father told me this story, so my paternal grandmother, my grandma, when her and her brother were little... This was around the time when the part in Oregon where they lived were just getting movie theaters. And their grandmother, who of course was from the 19th century, believed that movies were the work of the devil and forbade my grandmother's parents to let her and her brother see a movie. But her mother didn't care about this, but her grandmother insisted that they be spanked before they go see the movie, I guess to ward <laughs> off any potential do evil that might happen. So like <laughs> new media, this is what happens in a new medium where the people of the old guard who have no experience whatsoever, they believe it's a tool for indoctrination and inculcation and without knowing anything about it, reflexively try to work against it.
0: I don't understand this. Therefore, it must be evil in some way because I was not brought up to know about this right. and I have the channel to morality, and if this never came up, then it must be something I need to be suspicious of. But that suspicion, I think, is all over D&D still. Even though people aren't making the claims of cults and human sacrifice in the suburbs anymore, you still have that sense of weirdness. There's something odd about you if you're playing D&D.
3: And maybe, this just occurred to me when I think about it, if you've ever been part of a high school drama class... And if you weren't actually part of the class and watched it, it would be pretty goofy because not everyone's a good actor and everyone just kind of sounds stilted and sounds kind of melodramatic and kind of goofy. And a room full of nerdy teenage guys trying to pretend like they're a hulking badass barbarian of a warrior might sound pretty cheesy. So maybe some of the aversion that people have to it is just like when there's the overly talkative, really socially inept guy in class and whenever he opens his mouth, everyone goes, oh, just stop talking like because it just grates on you. Maybe people have that assumption about, about a room full of D&D is a bunch of people where you're just like, shut the fuck up. I don't want to hear what you're saying. It's
0: basically nerd karaoke. Yeah. That <laughs> it's a place where you can safely do something. Right. <laughs> it's kind of embarrassing, but everyone in the room is kind of into it and they're supportive. And you're kind of doing something that looks silly from the outside, but God damn it, It's fun you get to do it in a quiet little room you don't have to do it in a bar where everyone can laugh and throw beer bottles at you like in Roadhouse or something But <laughs> don't I, you dare blaspheme
3: Roadhouse don't you dare Mike
0: I love Roadhouse the thing that I, I was talking about is this idea of it existing both literally and figuratively in the basement D&D has made attempts to crawl out of that basement and become mainstream to failure every time it's made that attempt yep. it had a cartoon in the 1980s It's kind of hard to do a cartoon about a game where the characters aren't set. It's not like I'm going to do a Pac-Man game. As little plot as there is in Pac-Man, at least there's a character and there's bad guys that I can sort of base a story around. With D&D, it's who are the people in the group? Who do you want to be? Right. Right. So it's kind of hard to build a narrative around that It
3: was a He-Man clone is what it was It was a cartoon that came after He-Man And so it was essentially Eternia Made into a
0: With a cross of Land of the Lost in there too It yeah. was about these kids who yeah. go on a carnival ride right. Which apparently right. would not pass OSHA standards <laughs> Because they had some sort of Dimensional portal in there I don't even know what kind of carny they're trusting To run this ride He pulls a lever and drops people into a fantasy world of death <laughs> That's these, not cool. These are the ones we want i mean at some point they're not coming out the other end of that ride and that place is getting sued to shit <laughs> so but that was a basic concept of these kids and they're like oh you're gonna be the acrobat you're gonna be the cavalier you're going to be the thief you're the wizard and you dress up in funny costumes kind of like the nightmare warriors in one of the nightmare on elm street movies
2: of oh, the dream warriors the dream warriors exactly
0: yeah. you're play acting as different fantasy characters that you want to play to fight a bad guy It was a bit like that, so I guess there's a bit of the D&D in there, the idea that the characters are play-acting in the same way that the players would in the game, so I guess there's an accuracy there. There's also countless novels and pre-created universes that are set Mm -hmm. in D&D worlds, we're talking like Forgotten Realms, Dragonlance, Ravenloft, all these novels that are coming out all the time that expand on those worlds. But those ones, again, exist in that sort of basement that you're already in the game if you're reading that. I don't know anyone who reads D&D novels that hasn't already played the game.
2: Right, there's very few casual D&D novel readers. They're not like, well, I finished reading Heinlein. What's next? Yeah. Oh, this Dragonlance thing looks interesting. No, no, these are Dungeons & Dragons players.
3: I saw something online today. Uh, there was a Peter David book that was published in 2000, and it was part of a seven-book series of Star Trek The Next Generation and I had a moment where I was outside of myself, right? There was a part of me that was saying like, oh, I'd want to read this. It's about like the Iconians mm-hmm. come back and they have these crazy adventures and you know all this stuff. And I had a moment outside of myself and I was thinking. But at the same time with those
0: D&D novels, I don't think they hold up really well as fiction because they rely heavily on you knowing the game rules because you can feel right. the game rules in the narrative in a way that you don't with, say, Lord of the Rings, that you know, Gandalf is magical, and you see him do stuff like light up his staff every so often. But for the most part, you don't know what he's doing. It's sure. sort of under the radar. It's sort of weird. The same thing with Game of Thrones. There is the supernatural in this universe, but it's actually mysterious and kind of scary, and you don't really know what it is. It isn't. Oh, I just didn't read the right book to understand what Gandalf is doing. And yeah, here exactly. I want to explain. You know everything that he's doing, and here's how you can do it, friend.
2: But with the Dungeons and Dragons and Dragonlance and Forgotten Realms and right. all of that, it does rely very heavily on a certain amount of knowledge of the game. And I think that's what makes those relatively inaccessible then.
0: They don't hold as well up with stories, because I think that fantasy, I think, is more subject to being derivative than just about any other kind of fiction. Sci-fi gets it a little extent, but sci-fi usually is about coming up with an idea and then speculating about a future technology and how it affects the world, right. saying, oh, wow, we can be super productive because we have this thing that makes it so we don't have to sleep anymore. Right. What is the dark secret of this thing? <laughs> There's so many of those, but with fantasy, I think we fall back on, one, our ancient myths and religions, but we also fall back on basically only a a handful of authors, right? whether it's J.R.R. Tolkien, mainly. Mm -hmm. So you get a lot of these stories where it's the quest story, the hodgepodge group of people from all these different cultures, and there's like a dwarf guy and an elf guy and a hobbit guy, and they all travel together in a group to fight a dark lord who's trying to get some magical doohickey or destroy some magical doohickey or Mm -hmm. find it or save a magical doohickey. (laughs) Usually. And at some point... A MacGuffin, yeah. Exactly. And the bad guy is going after them in various ways, and they get separated from their group at some point and go on a secret mission while the rest of the people fight a war we've seen this story so many times sure fantasy has a much harder time breaking that i think than anything else so these fantasy DD stories that we get in the novelization sometimes feel like adaptations of adaptations of adaptations and like with a photocopy you get less back every time fair enough so i don't know how well they hold up and again that's not the sort of stuff you want to sort of put out there i think necessarily as an ambassador for the game because nobody's going to pick up the book first and they go "Ooh, i can play this yeah. Rather, you have to already be in it, right. and maybe it's that sort of insular nature of it. But I know that D&D has made that one attempt in the late 90s, early 2000s, they made a movie. Yeah, they did. It's got Jeremy Irons and Marlon Wayans.
3: Mar- there was oh, a Wayans in there. Uh... I'm so upset at you now, Mike, because you... <laughs> <laughs> I broke did. the seal on that conversation. <laughs> you totally did, but
2: continue.
0: It has to be talked about. It.
2: Wasn't that little girl from American Beauty in there too?
0: yes it does yeah. it has Thora Birch, Thora Birch as the it. empress and I believe her power is monotone <laughs> <laughs> she shares a lot of scenes with Jeremy Irons who goes on full on Nicolas Cage mode in this movie yep yeah. he knows what kind of movie he's in as the villain and he chews the fuck out of that scene. I'm
1: sure he got
3: paid an insane amount of money to be in that movie
0: but they backed a truckload of money up yeah. to your house and said okay I'll be in your shitty wizard movie <laughs> yeah that's really what it comes down to. <laughs> he really hams it up because he has to overcome the shitty special effects in this thing. It looks I, like I was going
3: to say, you could say he's chewing on the scenery, but there's very little scenery to be had, yes. so it's chewing on the green screen. You there know? it is. Because three quarters oh, yeah. of that fucking movie is green screen. In an age when CGI
0: effects were just not up to Right. Enough. It's hard to believe while watching this that Fellowship of the Ring happened the next year. Right. Yeah, I
2: was going right. to say that was the year before Fellowship. Right.
0: Oh my God. If you want to see high fantasy fall on its fucking face... <laughs> You look I, at this movie.
2: I think they had a lot of the right pieces. but What I don't think happened was they they didn't have a writer who understood the source material. I don't know. I'm just pulling stuff out of my head. No, that <laughs> that's good.
3: not true. I did a little research on this. Something Solomon his, his name. Okay. The director of it was a guy who super D and D fan. Uh-huh. He bought the rights from was it TSR or was it the coast then? Anyways,
2: no, it was still TSR back was, then.
3: Yeah, I think he bought the rights from TSR when it was still TSR when he was 19 years old. This movie was in development for 10 years, and by the time they actually produced it, Wizards of the Coast had owned it, and there was this big battle between which version of the script. See, he had initially written a script, and then, of course, Wizards of the Coast wanted to keep it more aligned with the current D&D property that they were releasing, and so they kind of did all these revisions, and then he had his own revisions to try to make it a little better of a story, and then they kind of did the script-by-committee thing. The director, who was a first-time director who directed a a $45 million movie based on an internationally recognized (laughs) franchise, his excuse was, well, they didn't let me shoot the script that I wanted to because of some corporate Wizards of the Coast bullshit.
0: Even with the script aside, the dragons look like shit in that movie. They look like they're about (laughs) to teach you how to make a resume in Microsoft Word.
1: (laughs) But everything looks like shit in that movie. I mean, the beholders, the elf ears, everything. It's all bad. (laughs) Actually, what was hard for me watching that movie was how much it referenced the game. Like the stupid wizard character shooting the lightning bolt looked like it was, it was like, hey, look, we did a lightning bolt. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the rogue's reading a scroll because rogues have that power now. You know, the guy does a backstab as the final move. Spoiler. Sorry. That <laughs> oh, was clearly a rogue backstab bonus. <laughs> the exactly. Thing is stupid. For me, because it was too referential.
0: That's a big problem with it, too, is you can get too referential, which is, I think, another reason why you don't get the super fan to write it. And we had this conversation in our Star Trek panel. You look at what is the best Star Trek movie. It was the one written and directed by people who were not fans of Star Trek, Trek. who say, okay, what is the good story elements of this? What is the stuff that speaks to me, a non-fan? And how do I relate that to other people? What is one of the worst Star Trek movies? Star Trek (laughs) Nemesis, which is made by a super fan. You have this somebody who is too loyal to the source material. I think that you have to have somebody who gets and likes the source material and understands it, but is it necessarily going to be so fucking picky about each and every little thing Mm -hmm. that they have to create moments from the game that only people will get from the game? You do Easter eggs like the X-Men movies. You do these little things that mean a lot to everybody, but don't stop everyone else. Right. And I don't think that it feels like this is the movie that did it. Jeremy Irons is this movie's saving grace. If it wasn't for him, I would have not made it through this movie. Because everything he does is like, I
1: have the
0: power! (laughs) And it's fucking wonderful. I mean, this is a guy who knows he's in a shitty movie, and he's just having a blast. He's in a shitty movie where he's basically telling himself, you know what, I can either try to save my dignity and try to look okay coming through this, which is impossible, or I can be the best thing about a shitty movie. And he decided the latter. (laughs) And he made it a lot more watchable.
2: Good on him, yeah.
1: I don't know. My question would be, because you couch this in terms of the thing that gets people to fantasy. I think that D&D is something that gets people to fantasy. If we're talking about in comparison to sci-fi, sci-fi versus fantasy as opposed to D&D versus sci-fi or something. Fantasy has a game that you can play that will addict you to the fantasy setting. And I do see people on some level being like, oh, here's a game, it's a less pretend game with heroes, and pretty soon I know all about all the different kinds of elves and halflings and shit. I don't see that with sci-fi. I mean, what is the gateway to sci-fi?
3: I hate the shit out of the fact that bookstores can't seem to find the urge to be able to separate those two categories from themselves.
0: Speaking of stay tuned, that's a fight we're going to (laughs) have later, my friend. I really kind of get to this, that a year later... High fantasy broke through to the mainstream. Yeah. And it broke through with the Lord Mm -hmm. of the Rings movies by Peter Jackson. Right. So it showed that it wasn't the material of an epic battle between elves and dwarves and wizards and dark lords that was scaring people off. Because we've seen the failures of trying to create epic fantasy on film before. I mean, Willow by Ron Howard and George Lucas. How
2: dare you, sir?
0: <laughs> I don't. I love Willow. Amazing. I think it's a really fun movie. But it was not the new Star Wars. And you can tell that the yeah. people wanted it to be the new Star Wars. It I suppose just, that's true. But Lord of the Rings was the new Star Wars, yep. where I saw people who were not nerds going yep. to midnight showings. Yeah. Of a movie with elves and spells and wizards and dark lords and hobbits.
2: It's about execution, and I think you hit it on the head. It's not the source material at all. It's the way he carried it off. Peter Jackson did some amazing, amazing things, and he gave us, I think, one of those most amazing nerd revolutions ever, I would venture to say, You know, all due respect to Mr. Lucas, that Lord of the Rings trilogy made being a nerd cool.
0: And I think that's what a great thing can do, because, I mean, his Star Wars, a couple decades before, did that for sci-fi in the Flash Gordon sense of this is high pulp adventure. And it was fun. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a big part of it, is that this Dungeons & Dragons movie was not fun. Nope. So we've seen Dungeons & Dragons basically bashing against this wall to try to get into the mainstream for such a long time. Now that high fantasy is as popular and as mainstream and as fun as it is, where you can reliably, as a producer or as a studio head, say, okay, this is a movie that has swords and sorcery. I think I can get an audience for this. There's not that barrier anymore. Right? Can Dungeons & Dragons capitalize on this and make a great movie?
1: I don't know about movies, but I think that World of Warcraft is what proves that fantasy can be in everyone's living room, to be honest. For the average gamer, World of Warcraft is proof nobody hasn't seen world of warcraft and many of us have people who've lost their lives to that addiction <laughs> and uh, you know yep. and if you look at fourth edition D D, it is world of warcraft and those of us who play world of warcraft which i did for many years uh, actually enjoy it i mean i do at least i enjoy playing fourth ed D through that lens if you're thinking in terms of oh the cleric actually has a party role here and the fighter is a tank it's not just a guy who swings a sword every round and does a certain amount of damage There's a lot more intricate play there. In that sense, fantasy is becoming more, it's almost cliche at this point. It's not even something we need to bring into the mainstream. It's there.
0: So I guess to sum things up before we get into our final bit of the discussion, we live in an age now where we have a lot of options if we want to have epic fantasy and we want to play it in game form. Not only do we have video games and we have these mass multiplayer games like World of Warcraft that are available to us to create a fantasy setting that doesn't rely on you getting your friends together for six hours in a room and making sure your schedules are all clear, (laughs) that you can do it like that. And there's already people that are ready to play right now at 3 a.m. and want to help you kill some orcs. So with that kind of competition going on for your attention in the fantasy realm, where is D&D in all this and where does D&D go forward from there?
2: What they're doing is reinventing themselves. The good folks at Wizards have taken everything from version 4, rule set, and essentially are throwing it out the window to revamp and reintroduce an entirely new gaming system that is still Dungeons & Dragons, and they've created this massive world-destroying event called the Sundering, and it's playing out in books as well as current modules and things like that. So what they're doing to try and stay relevant, if you will, as as you say, is they're revamping the entire thing. They've torn it down, and they're rebuilding from the bottom up. I can't wait to see how it all shakes out.
1: Their new version of D&D, the fifth edition, they're calling D&D Next. The premise of it appears to be that they want to build a larger rule set essentially an, a modular rule set that can encompass anything any style of play you want which means both rules light story driven narrative which is becoming more and more popular in games in the role-playing world outside of DD, as well as more tactical games which harken back to chain mail which D was based on which was actually a miniatures game and i know a lot of people who would prefer the game were just a tactical game a puzzle basically about combat so i think that they're going in the right direction with that in the sense that it's more options are better to me, that was the revolution of 3rd Edition was that they gave you more options. So I think they've been moving in that direction with a little bit of a stumble with 4th Edition. And that creates relevance, at least with D&D players. In terms of its relevance in the larger world, I don't know. I mean, if our goal is to keep it as a cipher, as the secret club where the super nerds meet and you know put on their super nerd hats and plot taking over the world then maybe we don't want it to be culturally relevant. We want to keep it in the closet and not pollute it. I'm not sure that's my goal. I would prefer that we had more nerds than less. I really wish we would open the door to other genders and races, maybe. (laughs) I mean, I think that the gatekeeping that goes on with D&D is really, really hard on women. My wife was not a gamer when I met her, (laughs) and she is now. She's one of the more hardcore gamers you could meet. (laughs) when it comes to tabletop and online and LARP. And the trials that she went through in order to get her foot in the door of nerddom, in that sense, was most intense when it came to gaming. So I think that it's almost like other kinds of things, other nerdy things are are the gateways now, not D&D. You know, I mean, she got into that fantasy world through Harry Potter, of all things. And I think that's really brought a lot of women into the nerd world, where I think D&D is too exclusionary, and we need to open ourselves up.
3: Well, considering I haven't played a game of D&D since that fated campaign that was marked by inebriation from several different substances (laughs) in Los Angeles, and I really don't have any desire to play a Dungeons & Dragons game given that I think there's lots of more interesting types of games to explore. I'd say for me, as someone who probably got into familiarity with D&D more through the CRPGs, the computer games like the Baldur's Gates and the Hills Far and the Eye of the Beholders, they've really been coasting with their video game properties. The legacy for the medium that I care a lot about video games is that Ultima, Magic, Elder Scrolls, these are all successful series that people love and that you will continue to keep playing those games. Piggybacked on Dungeons & Dragons while over the past 10 plus years, Dungeons & Dragons licensed games have just been faltering and they haven't been all that interesting. A lot of other more interesting developers have been doing cooler stuff in the fantasy space and I'd like to actually see something like a Baldur's Gate to come back around. Beyond that, I don't know what it would take to get me back into Dungeons & Dragons. An extinction event, probably. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> yes.
0: There's one thing that d and can do that these other ones can't. I mean, sure, World of Warcraft can have you interacting with all these people all over the world all at once. If you don't want to adventure with them, you can go off. They're doing something over there, and you're doing something over there. And unless you have a two-headed GM, that's just not going to happen. But in the case of Dungeons & Dragons... a pen and paper role-playing game, is that you can do things that developers never assumed you would try. It's that X factor, that one moment where a DM and all of the other players are standing there with their jaws hanging because they can't believe somebody just tried that. (laughs) And I think that until video games get to that level, and I don't know if they can get to that level, I think there's always going to be a place for Dungeons & Dragons, that it's always going to be there with the most random, hilarious, messed up, funny heroic moments you can have with your ragtag group of friends while you're sitting around pretending to be wizards and warriors and priests and i love it to death for that reason is that weird x factor where i don't know what's going to happen tonight but it's going to be fun Mm -hmm. on that we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back with high point low point
3: Celebrating Aquaman, King of the Seven Seas, and Firestorm, the Nuclear Man. Available Mondays on
2: AquamanShrine.com and FirestormFan.com. Fan the flame and ride the wave.
0: And we are back. This is Radio Versus the Martians, and we are talking Dungeons and Dragons. And it is time for what we call high point, low point, where we go to the top of the mountain, the bottom of the barrel for RPGs, dice, saving throws, and Dungeons and Dragons. So I am going to start with you, Chris. All right. We're going to start low. What is the low point of Dungeons and Dragons?
2: A little thing called Expedition to the Barrier Peaks. It was a module that came out, I want to say, in the late 70s, early 80s, wherein the intrepid adventurers of the game happenstanced upon what amounted to a downed spaceship, and oh, no. had, had to fight robots and had the opportunity to pick up things like laser guns <laughs> and <laughs> a plasma sword and bullcrap like this that I was deeply offended as a fan, of, not only of science fiction, but of Dungeons & Dragons as well. It's like that did not go together well. Despite what was a, a pretty good story and, and a couple of good enemies and things like that, it just, it felt so forced and so hokey. I was like, come on, really guys? And I'm like... 12 years old at this point and i couldn't believe
3: it i was like no
0: and if i can't get you with that when you're 12 <laughs> yeah it can't get anybody well you flash
3: forward what like 15 years and there's spell jammer and that's basically <laughs> yeah. the same thing right
2: uh, it felt so hackneyed and forced and weird even at the time and i go back and i look at things like that now i was like yeah that was that's a piece of crap That was terrible
0: it's funny because there's actually a bad 80s fantasy slash sci-fi movie that follows that path called Your Hunter from the Future. Yes. <laughs> your Hunter from the Future is fucking glorious because it starts out as your standard 80s barbarian movie mm-hmm. where your hero is killing people with a stone axe and fighting cavemen and dinosaurs. Yep. And then halfway through the movie, fucking robots show up. Yeah. And you realize you're in a post-apocalyptic future. <laughs> and it, it feels like that D&D module you're describing where this is the moment where everyone goes, wait, wait, DM, what? Yeah. I'm, I'm sorry. You hear the needle off the record player? Exactly, yeah. <laughs> (laughs) So it's a bit of that on there Uh, and it can be glorious in a movie, but sometimes you come into the game for a, you want something mm -hmm. and if you don't get it and suddenly you're like, okay, I got a laser sword and you feel like you've just broken the game yeah, and you can't do future adventures with these characters. Without going, yeah, there's spaceships in this world. And yeah. it's in the back of your head. And exactly. You, just, oh. you can't make it go away.
2: And they introduced a, a really ridiculous game mechanic whereby these characters who, who had obviously no way of knowing anything about technology or electrical circuits or, you know, laser guns. You had to roll your way through this flow chart. And it was it was <laughs> simple as this. <laughs> D12 in the first square. Success. You figured out that this is where the battery goes. Oh, but you don't know what a battery is. Roll again. D12. Oh, you missed? it blows up in your hand. You know, it was a huge, it was a page of this flow chart because they wanted to make it complex. They didn't want you to just pick this thing up and start shooting lasers. And I get that. And thank God for that. At least it was difficult for them to get these laser guns, but it was a laser gun.
0: <laughs> that's sort of like the end of Return of the Jedi from the perspective of the Ewoks. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> these things just fall out of the sky and it's like, hey, I've got a gun now. Hey,
2: what's this do? Exactly. <laughs> and that's what the characters felt like. And I had the misfortune, I guess, of uh, GMing that particular session with my friends. And oh. they were all super jazzed. To be getting laser pistols and things like that and i was like you guys don't see how stupid this is come on and the dialogue that's built in for the game master to describe things like robots you know or electrical panels it, it looks like a, a crystal ball but it's a flat square on the wall and then a strange suit of armor starts walking towards you as if possessed that's just terrible I just uh, makes me sad to think about it now <laughs> poor chris poor chris
1: ryan low point my low point is the Character Race Table 3 from 1st Edition's Advanced Dungeons & Dragons. So what it is is a table, which prior to 3rd Edition, there were racial minimums and maximums for ability scores. And this particular one includes both racial minimums, which incidentally, I believe that there are racist overtones to uh, <laughs> that to Dungeons right. & Dragons. I don't know how else to put it. I think that the way that D&D makes it so that different races, not species, but races have intrinsic abilities and disabilities and professional proclivities and things. To me, it's smacks of racism. And then on top of that, the game's premised on taking the stuff from less civilized people or defending people from these uh, barbaric invaders. Anyway, in this particular table, it has an M slash F column in each of the races. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> there's separate male and female maximums and minimums for each race. And it also at the bottom of the table references another table that has it for humans, which delineates that there's and most of these just affect strength. But basically that on the 18 with the percentile after it, delineation of what level of 18 strength you've got, human women can only have up to the 50, whereas men can have up to 100 on that scale. And all of the races basically have, yeah, I think all of them except half orc. Women have lower maximums and I guess the same minimums. And this is kind of a famous tape in the the idea that we need to have women just be intrinsically weaker than men. And there's no other side to it, right? Women don't get like a charisma bonus or something, wisdom bonus because you know wise women. <laughs>
2: I feel like they could have balanced that out. Exactly what I was thinking about that chart too is like if there was a, one thing somewhere that made it better and more desirable to be a woman, something. But no, it wasn't there.
1: No matter what they do, it's bad, right? I mean, (laughs) like, to have this essentialistic (laughs) gender idea that women are inherently wiser or more charismatic would be problematic, too. It's
2: still sexist, exactly.
1: Why not just give us the ability to make a character and then we can say that it's whatever gender or species we want and kind of give us the tools to build characters, though? would be what I would say. And so, but I think it's a fairly modern perspective. I think that the game didn't think in those terms back then. I think that the fact that races had limited classes and in original D&D, race was class. Yes. You could have dwarf or elf as a class. That was your defining characteristic. Your race. Mm -hmm. Your race was your defining characteristic. You don't get more racist than that.
3: Why why not judge you by the content of your character? (laughs) Whoa, there we go. Uh, There we go.
1: That's awful. (laughs) No, but the context of your character is, in this case, your race. That's it. (laughs) Your class level combination.
0: That if you're a dwarf, you have to be a warrior. If you're an elf, you have to be sort of a half warrior, half wizard. And only humans get any variety. I remember that.
2: Yep.
1: And D&D, even to this day, 4th Ed works this way, where if you're going to pick a wizard, you probably want a character that has an intelligence bonus, right? And you can get an intelligence bonus based on what race you're playing. Yep. So it's better to place certain races with certain professions, certain classes. That is in <laughs> like, I, <laughs> it's that certain types of people, in particular, their race determines what they can do in life is really a problem for me. So, I mean, I think this is the lowest point is when they also delineate and it's a matrix, right? So it's, it's by race and then by gender, yeah. you get a, a matrix of different types of ways that we can say the different types of people are inferior. It's really the most complex, inferior <laughs> categorization system I've ever seen.
0: I just thought of a modern equivalent to really hammer your point home, which is imagine if you play a certain race and they say you're a bad driver, so you get a <laughs> negative bonus to a penalty to your stats on driving, or oh, you're good at math, or you're bad at this. Or, and it's the stuff like that, that when you put it into a real world context, mm. really makes us all uncomfortable from a modernist perspective.
1: Patton Oswald did that in Reno 911, where he plays the Dungeon Master, and two of the black cops come, and he's like, look, I really appreciate you guys. You know, I love Drow, uh, you, know. <laughs> oh. <laughs> so, you know. So, yeah, that's my low point by far. Casey, low point.
3: Dungeon and Dragons, the movie, the t- year 2000 incidentally a friend of mine from la who was an editor and motion graphics guy he used to get dvds all the time and so he gave me a i think it was a bundle of three dvds one of them was dungeon dragons sealed in cellophane the other was bones with snoop dogg yes and the third i think was the first lord of the rings movie if i'm not mistaken i had that dungeon dragons copy still sealed last year before i sold it to half price books for less than a dollar because there there was no i'd already seen the movie once in the theater and there was no reason to even open it there was no reason to if i were to sum up why it was so terrible well for one fucking marlon wayans he's the guy who in the year that it was released in 2000, he was in Requiem for a Dream, which was an amazing movie. And probably from a legitimate movie standpoint, probably the best role that he's ever played in his life. Since then, he's the guy who's been in the scary movies. Mm-hmm. The goofiest, like the most insultingly stupid type of humor. And like, this is the appropriate way to put levity in a Dungeons and Dragons story. I just thought it was, it was that over the top. And to be honest, when I saw the movie in the theater, I had eaten a marijuana brownie. So <laughs> that probably made it an easier experience to watch than it actually did. But I do remember the uh, ridiculous Jurassic Park ripoff end to Jeremy Irons' character. Because mm-hmm. at the end, the dragon just comes down and eats him and half just like the T Rex. You know, yeah. it was r- ridiculous. <laughs> I didn't know this before I looked this up. Apparently, there was a direct for TV sequel made in 2005 to the movie, and then a direct to DVD sequel made last year in Europe. No. Yes, yes. So they're still making (laughs) D&D movies despite the fact of how horrible the first one is. That's That's my low point.
0: Yes, there's the racism. That is objectively worse, but I think Lost Opportunities to me are more frustrating. And this was a moment where they could do a great movie. And the fact that you can actually take the career path of Dungeons & Dragons and match it to Marlon Wayans pretty close in this regard. (laughs) (laughs) Because you had this moment where this is a moment to prove that this is a real thing, that this has mainstream appeal, that he was great in Requiem for a Dream. And I remember having a film school instructor actually say to me it's like that movie made me change my mind about marlon wayans i thought he was just a dime a dozen comedic actor mm-hmm. i mean there's hundreds of guys like that that do sort of the goofy roles but then i see him in requiem for a dream and i'm like you know what this guy's got some acting chops. This guy can do drama. And he said, then I saw Dungeons and Dragons. And I'm like, yeah, never mind. And it feels like that yeah, never mind moment happened for Dungeons and Dragons and as a franchise in that moment. That the impact of the sucktitude of this movie was so great that it drove it into direct-to-DVD sequels, direct-to-TV sequels. They did a Dragonlance movie that has probably the worst animation of anything oh, I've ever seen that I tried to watch it in preparation painful. for this panel. And I just couldn't Mm-mm. because it made Hanna-Barbera look like fucking Pixar. Right. It feels like the level of quality that's coming out from d and is a bit like it's written for people that are predisposed to liking it, mm-hmm. that they want to like it so bad that they'll ignore the fact that it has shitty production values, terrible acting, terrible writing, and they're not even trying anymore. Dungeons and Dragons as learning to love its basement and wanting to scare people out of its basement is making its bad points worse, that I think the failure of that movie could have been that moment to bring in new fans, like you said. And I know that my friend Paul Rue over at Mike and Paul Save the Universe have made the same point about comic books, Ryan. There are some mediums that are dead set against new people liking them, as if this is a secret club and we don't want to let people in. And I think D&D may rival comic books for that trophy of saying, Mm -hmm. whoa, 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 what's Mm -hmm. a girl doing in here? Mm I think if you want to grow as a medium, as a genre, as a type of game, you have to stop treating new people like intruders. And I think the D&D is still in that mindset, and maybe that's why it's still in the nerd ghetto. So for me, the movie and everything that's followed in that mentality is my low point. So let's bring things up a little bit. So we're going to crawl out of that dungeon, dust ourselves off, and actually look through the treasure trove that is Dungeons & Dragons. We're here because we love this thing, to varying degrees. So what is the high point of Dungeons & Dragons? What is it that you love? Where is D&D at its best?
1: The high point for me is is the open game license, honestly. I think the D&D players, and often just nerds in general, we have an entrepreneurial spirit. We are smart we think of ourselves as smart we think of ourselves as a creative and it's a creative game and the idea that at some point in the history of D and you know they have a license it's just not open it's not a true open source license the way the ogl was but at one point D had this license that was basically like linux it was an open system that people can modify and it's an evolutionary environment and anybody can participate in the market And the way they talked about it at the time, they were like, it's an evolutionary thing. We can see, you know, Star Wars is trying this thing with using wound points in addition to hit points. And we'll see if that's a thing we want to keep. That's an experiment, essentially. For me, the high point there is we are innovators. We are thinkers. And so many of the smart people in this world came out of the basements that you're talking about. We were ostracized nerds and we've climbed our way back up and we've shaped the world and made it what it is. The OGL really represents that to me, the fact that we can all get involved in D&D and we all own it. It's part of our culture, not just this commodity, this trademark.
3: I'm probably going to diverge because as we know, it will take a large nuclear event that destroys all of the role-playing games on the planet for me to probably get back and play D&D again. (laughs) (laughs) I had, since my initial introduction and, and most of my exposure really has been through the video game licenses, I'll say that my high point is Planescape Torment. Ooh. You know, it was made in 1999. It was made out of the Planescape setting for Dungeons & Dragons, which was one of the latest settings that they had before they started trying to rewrite everything. It's a game that it's largely considered one of the best computer RPGs ever made and largely because from a story standpoint, it's probably the best written and the deepest story of a video game and the most character driven video game that's ever been made. You play the role of basically a reanimated corpse on this plane in in the spire and the game is about discovering who you were in life. The goal isn't to vanquish some kind of evil, it's to figure out, starting from absolute zero, this is the way you start in most adventures, right? You start as a lowly character and you come to discover how much power you actually have. And this, you are literally, you're the nameless one. You're someone who doesn't have a name, who has no history, and through the course of it, you don't necessarily level up your character so you can win battles. You level up your character because leveling up your character allows you to explore more dialogue options and to come to know yourself and the realm around you better. And it is open-ended. It's kind of like Fallout in that way. It's a very open-ended, you've got quests you can go on, you've got side quests. It's very much in that same engine. But the thing that will remain from this is that it's a readerly experience. It's not a grind, or it's not about shooting, it's not about accumulation. It's a readerly experience. It's an interactive novel in the truest form. And it's in a visual setting that is just unlike anything else that you've had. And the reason why this is at a high point and it isn't necessarily fixed in time is, the Exile Entertainment, the people who are doing Wasteland, which is one of the original CRPGs, they're doing a, a spiritual sequel to Planescape Torment called Torment Tides of Numenera, which is a similar idea of a deep story done in not D&D's world, in Numenera's world, another RPG world, that looks incredible. So if D&D spawned this, the idea of making a game that is this rich, beautiful story that completely eviscerates the idea of a model of an RPG, then this is where I think we can praise, we can sing D&D's praises.
2: I think for me, the best thing about Dungeons & Dragons is that it has given us Everything that came after. I play a lot of games, we've talked about this already, but there are a number of things that I am very, very certain would never have existed had it not been uh, for Gygax and uh, Arneson back in the day getting together and creating Dungeons & Dragons for us. So many games owe their very existence to Dungeons & Dragons, and some in larger ways than others, obviously, but there's a whole world of gaming that I would never have been able to experience if they hadn't done it first, those who came after stood on the on the shoulders of giants, as it were. And I'm talking about board games, and I'm talking about video games, and I'm talking about tabletop games, and all of these things that, had it not been for them kicking open that door, we might never have seen anything at that level. I mean, Diaz being what they are, games would have still existed. I'm not saying that none of these games would have existed, but I think a lot of them saw the potential there and ran with it and made it their own thing. And Ryan, I'm so glad you brought up Cyberpunk 2020, because I played the heck out of that thing. <laughs> That game came along at exactly the right moment for me. He's like, you know what, like, guys? I'm starting to get a little bit bored with wizards and dragons and things like that. What if, what if we had a game with like with guns and computers and, and you know and, and robots and things like this? Yeah, yeah. Let's do that. We as kids, we tried to invent our own game called D and D eighty eight. Yeah, uh, nice. Yeah, <laughs> nice. oh yeah. But but then uh, cyberpunk happened, and it was just it was a whole other thing. And I was like, oh yeah, yeah. That's the stuff. And, and giving me this wonderful way to interact with my friends and to tell these stories and to just have fun in the purest sense of the word. Dungeons & Dragons is fun. Every version of it, you know, flawed as each one might have been, it's always been a highlight for me and, and being able to sit down and spend five or six hours with my friends and just goof off literally while rolling dice and trying to solve these puzzles uh, that are the games. That's what I take away from it. I, I think the high point for D&D for me is the legacy that it, it has given us all.
0: My high point is incredibly personal in the sense that Dungeons & Dragons was a key part of me becoming comfortable in my own skin. I am a nerd, and as part of my nerd heritage, I'm socially awkward. I am not comfortable getting outside of my own hermit-like, misanthropic, shut-in nature (laughs) Dungeons & Dragons helped me get comfortable moving outside of that, socially interacting with people, solving puzzles, expressing myself in the mode of another character. And I'm not a drama guy, so that was really uncomfortable for me. Mm -hmm. I wasn't drawn to that. I was drawn to the idea of I get to... Bring back that 10-year-old me who read Lord of the Rings for the first time. and was like, I can have that adventure and I can right. make those decisions and I can be this wizard. And I don't think we ever fully grow out of those sorts of fantasies and daydreams that it's like, it would be really cool. Because if, let's be honest, if wizard was a real thing you could be, I would be a wizard. <laughs> oh, yeah. There's no other job I'd rather have. <laughs> but again, like Ghostbuster, these are just things I'm not allowed to be. I love the ability to just sort of shuck off the real world for just a little while with my friends and play out a fantasy game using these sorts of characters and all of our imaginations coming together in an organic way, not that we're in competition with each other as we are in something like Monopoly, but that we're creating a story together. That, for me, that sense of taking a day aside for six to eight hours and just playing with my friends in a dark room... Drinking Mountain Dew and giggling about goofy shit that happens in the game. That's my memory of Dungeons & Dragons. And to be honest, every time I've tried to play it since, I'm chasing that feeling. Mm -hmm. So that's my high point. Nice. And with that in mind, I think that closes out our panel. I want to thank all of our contributors this week. I want to thank Chris Walker, board game guru, a regular contributor to the BJ Shay's Geek Nation podcast and longtime role player. Thanks for having me. Programmer, role-playing game designer for Ryan Shaddock Games, publishing license material for Numenera, Ryan Shaddock. Sure, thanks. And finally... My compadre, as always, Casey Doran.
3: Thanks for having me, Mike. Let's roll some 20-sided die. Saving throw versus end the podcast.
0: And with that critical failure in mind, we hope to see you on the next episode of Radio vs. the Martians. Radio vs. the Martians is produced by Mike Gillis and Casey Doran. Our editor was Mike Gillis. Our theme music was written and performed by Todd Maxfield Matsumoto. Find us online at radioversusthemartians.com and send us your feedback at info at Radio
2: One of the players Robbie played with got carried away and killed him. That's kind of far out. Mazes and monsters is a far out game. Swords, poison, spells, battles, maiming, killing. Hey, it's all imagination. Is it?